0: You're listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. My name is Jake, like Stan said, and I'm one of the pastors at Veritas in Cedar Rapids, and it's exciting to be here with you. It's really cool to be a part of a team of a network of churches, and we pray for you guys. We celebrate what's going on in here, and it's just kind of good to be in the trenches together. And it kind of put a face to uh, to Anthem Church, uh, and it's been it's been a lot of fun to be the retreat speaker and spend some time with the college students here. Um, and I feel really important being able to say that I was a retreat speaker in Mexico, uh, so that was <laughs> check that off the bucket list. Uh, but yeah, we're going to continue on in, in Nehemiah, so if you have your Bibles, uh, we're, going to, uh, we're going to be there. And right off the bat, I just want to kind of, we get to know each other, I'm going to ask you a question. You don't have to answer this out loud, but I'd love for you just to think of it. When is the last time that you sinned? And I know we're like, we're all sinners, there's kind of a generalization of that in our hearts, but like, Like specifically, when is the last sinful action, sinful thoughts, sinful words, motive? Like when was the last time, most recent time that you sinned? Maybe we'll take it a step further. When is the last time that you confessed your sin to somebody else? Because we, we, we know we all, we're all sinners, we all struggle with that, and then if you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, just somebody invited you, maybe you'd put it like, when is the last time you did something that you regretted? And you're like, oh, I hope I don't do that again. I mean, if, if you're kind of used to church, we kind of put a word to, to our flaws and our failures and our, and our depravity. Um, so you think, okay, when is the last time that happened? And then when is the last time that you confessed your sin to somebody else? Because we know we all sin, but, but I'm willing to, to guess that... Um, the, the amount of confession doesn't line up with the amount of sin in our life. Like we don't keep up uh, confessing the amount of sin that we have in our life. And confession is, is something that we are directed to do in scripture. But it seems to be one of those ought to Christian things. Um, you know, I, I ought to do that, but it's not practiced enough. Or our perspective when it comes to confession is confession is for the really big sins. Like if I really blow it, then I need to come clean. But, but all the little ones I kind of manage and, and try to keep under control. Um, and the reality is that sin in our life often goes unchallenged, uh, unconfronted, unconfessed, and just kind of... Um, accepted in our lives. Like, we just deal with it. We like, it's just a part. That's, that's what I struggle with. But we never kind of bring it into the light. We, we know about it, but, but it doesn't get challenged like it should. It doesn't get uh, confessed like it should, and we just deal with it. And, and listen, I get it. Like confession is, is not fun. Um, and I'm a guest speaker here, and when I saw my text, it's like, oh, thanks, Dan. We'll just tackle this one. But, but confession's not fun. Nobody likes to just say, hey, listen, this is how I failed. This, is, this exposes my weakness. This is where I blew it. We don't, we don't enjoy uh, confession, but we're going to look at a passage in Nehemiah where confession is intermixed in with a celebratory party and worship. And I want to know, as a follower of Jesus, how do those two things go together? How, how do those two things go together? Because that's like, French fries and ice cream, right? You I mean, you think, those things don't normally go together, but I, I dip my fries in my Frosty at Wendy's. I'm just going to, I feel like I need to confess that now. Like, <laughs> but that tastes good, but we don't, we don't think of, of ice cream when we think of French fries. When we think of French fries, we think of what? Ketchup, right? That's what we think of. And when we think of confession, we don't think of celebration and worship, we think of, of shame, we think of guilt, we think of embarrassment, we think of consequences. But that's not what's going on in the text that we're going to look at, not, not completely. They don't, they don't stay there. So... Um hopefully our perspective of confession as believers can change a little bit. So uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to do start in verse 13 and go through the whole chapter of chapter 9. Uh, so go ahead and flip there, find that. And let me just kind of recap. If you're, if you're turning there, but Nehemiah uh hears about the shape that Jerusalem is in. It breaks his heart. He he wants to go back and, and kind of help this city recover. So he goes back there and he leads kind of uh the, the restoration of the city. They're starting with the walls and they're gonna rebuild the walls. And Nehemiah or, or uh Nehemiah's leading that. Ezra joins him, who's kind of this scribe-priest character, and he shows up, and in this kind of rebuilding time, they discover a scroll. The the book of the law, and Ezra reads it to the people. And this is kind of what I believe Troy talked about last week. And in the reading of the law, the people kind of find out how far they've actually drifted away from God in their life. And they're convicted of their sin. And they start to weep. And their leaders tell them this is one of my favorite Bible passages in all scripture. They said, No, don't weep eat fat portions and drink sweet wine. That's like my life verse. Like you should just like eat the fat. Like I love that. I mean, you're, you got student ministries as the salt company. I wonder if your high school ministries could be the fat company. I wonder what that T-shirt would look like. But, but he's saying, listen, they're, they're weeping. They're, they're sorrowful. They're convicted. And the direction their leaders go is like, no, this is a holy day. Like this is a, this is a holy day. Rejoice over this conviction. Eat the fat portions. Drink sweet wine. Like find joy in the Lord. And we're going to kind of pick up where, where that part ends in verse thirteen. He says this: On the second day, the heads of fathers of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law, and they found in it found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seven months. So they read the law, and now they're kind of getting together as leaders and saying, okay, let's study it more. Let's get in there. Let's find out what it's saying. And as they study it, they discover that they should be observing a festival right now that they should be observing the festival. Like God God had a concern that when the Israelites entered the promised land, that they were going to forget that God rescued them. They were going to forget that God provides for them. They were going to forget that God is their Savior. So he established festivals. Now, if you can imagine, you've been a slave for 400 years, and when you're released, part of the law that that your Savior gives you is, hey, here's some parties I want you to have throughout the year. These are things I want you to remember. And he instituted these so that they would remember certain things about God and who he is and what he's done. And one of those festivals um, was the Feast of Booths. And and what they've realized is they kind of look in the law. is like, hey, we should be observing this right now. We need to get get back to following God like we should. Well, on our calendar, on our religious calendars, we should be celebrating the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths uh, happened five days after the Day of Atonement, and it lasted eight days. And it was marked at the end of the harvest. So it's a very celebratory time, but it it kind of commemorated Israel's time in the wilderness. So after they were freed uh, from Egypt, they wandered in in the wilderness for 40 years. And God provided for them in in those 40 years. Their their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. Uh, He he rained down bread from heaven. He fed them. He provided water for them. And they're supposed to commemorate or, or remember how God provided for them in this time. And, and they built uh, like makeshift booths. They, they made these houses, kind of these temporary houses to live in uh, during the celebration. So it's kind of like, all right, it's camp out. Like everybody, we're going to live in tents. We're going to camp for eight days. And we're going we're to celebrate what God has done for us in, in our history. And it was, it was a, a festival that had the highest number of sacrifices. It, it was the harvest was bringing in. It was a very joyful uh, a time. And, and it was, uh, it was a time, now, now, if you kind of put yourself in this context, this is a group of people that are under the oppression of a pagan government. And they're sent back to their, their capital city, their pride and joy, which is in ruins. And they're trying to rebuild it, which doesn't really reflect the glory that it once was. But they're, they're putting this together. And in the midst of this process, they realize how far they've drifted for God. They're convicted, they feel terrible. And then they found out, okay, well, we're suppo- if we're going to get back on track with God, we're supposed to be celebrating right now. We're supposed to be remembering how God freed us before from an oppressive pagan government and how he can take care of us in the midst of transition. So this is what they're supposed to be remembering. So they obey this and they celebrate this, this festival. Um, and then we're going to pick up again the story in chapter 9. This is after they, they've celebrated the festival. It says, now on the 24th day of this month, of the, uh, so this is after that celebration, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now here's what's going on. There is a mix of emotions. You have, starting off, like, they're weeping, like, we're, we're so far from God, like, what has happened? And then their leaders are like, no, 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 this is a joyous time, celebrate, there's a festival we're supposed to be doing, so they do that, and then they come out of that, and they're like, but, but we're a mess, like, we're, we're far from God, so they're, like, they're not eating, they're fasting, they put on sackcloth, which is just like this itchy clothes that's just kind of saying, hey, I'm not out for joy right now, I need to get back to God, and they're putting, like, they got dirt on their face, and they're just, they're mourning so you have this mix of emotions going on. It says uh, that they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now, this is foreign for us as kind of this, as Americans who just love kind of our individualistic mindset. Now like, we preach personal responsibility. Like you take responsibility for your sins, I'll take responsibility for my sins, but we are so individualistic in our mindset. Like just tell me what I'm responsible for, what I did. Um, like for example, in our history. We, we've, we have tons of sins in our history, but it's like, that's not my problem, right? I didn't own slaves. That I didn't do that. But these people had such a greater understand of, understanding of a collective community that, that, that they're, they're kind of in this together, and they're saying, listen, we went wrong. We, like us, our forefathers, all of us, like we've drifted from God. We've sinned against God. We've went wrong. Our fathers blew it. Like, this is where they, they kind of embrace pagan gods, and we've indulged in stuff, and they just see, like, the whole community, like, we've drifted so far from God, and they're confessing their sins, they're confessing the sins of their history, and what we see in this is they're taking sin really, really seriously. They're taking their sins seriously. They're taking the sins in their history serious. I mean, before, they're, they're weeping over it. And here, they're fasting and wearing sackcloth and, and putting dirt on their face. And they're confessing their sins. And it seems like this kind of public gathering where they kind of all get together. And, and the, the insight that we get, it says they stood and confessed their sins. So I don't quite know what that looked like. But it's this gathering of just repentance where people are standing up and just saying, this is, this is what's going on in my life. Like, I I embrace the gods of Egypt. I got idols in my house. Like, you know, I've done this. And and people stand up, well, I've done this. And this is where I'm at. This is like, they're just standing up all over and kind of confessing their sins. And the point is, they are clearly not okay with the sin in their life. They hate it. They don't want it in there. They want to get rid of it. And they're, they're dragging it into the light. and They're confessing it. Which makes us ask the question for ourselves How do you feel about your sin? What are the emotions that come up when you see and come face to face with the sins in your life? Is it embarrassment? Is it shame? Is it guilt? which all those are understandable, but those feelings left to themselves, they just kind of lead to covering up. Like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to expose it because I'm embarrassed about that. I'm, I'm ashamed of that. I feel guilty about that. So I just want to cover it up. When you deal with sin, do you ever have an emotion of anger? Do you ever have an emotion of urgency? Like, I need to do something about this. The Bible it talks a lot about, it uses language of that we need to put our sin to death. That we should kill it, that we should drag it into the light. Like, there's very violent language when it, the Bible talks about how we should deal with sin in our life. But sometimes it seems like we have more of a, um, a need to manage our sin better. Like, I need to keep it in check, I need to keep it under control, but, but not necessarily kill it. it. It's like people that have exotic pets, right? People that keep an exotic pet, it's like, okay, that's a responsibility that's maybe a stupidity. But you have, you have some things that there's danger that you're trying to manage, that you shouldn't manage. And that's why we have shows like When Animals Attack, right? Or you hear on the news of like, a man was strangled by his pet nine-foot you know, bow constructor. And you're like, wait, time out. You have a, a nine-foot bow constructor as a pet? Like, Of course that's going to happen. Or the man it's like, he was mauled by his pet tiger. It's like, you didn't see that coming? It's a tiger, right? So you can, like, scratch it behind the ears for a while, but eventually it's going to bite you, right? Because you're his toy. It's an apex predator. Like, you don't have that as a pet. And we don't have, and we shouldn't have pet sins. Like, I'm just trying to control it. I'm trying to manage it. I'm trying to keep it in check. It will destroy you. And you know what? You may be able to keep it under control for a while, but it is eventually going to get the best of you. Like we, we can't have pet sins. We have to see the danger of sin, what it does to us in our relationship with God. We have to have an urgency to kill our sin and get rid of our sin. Uh, we, we lived in Arizona for a while, um, and we moved into a house, and I was, it, was, it was night, and I was sleeping one time, and uh, you ever just wake up at night and you just feel like you know, something's not right, like as a parent, like I just you know, something's not right. So I get up, and I'm walking through the house and checking on the kids, and <clears throat> I open... Uh, Rudy's room, my my youngest, and uh, she's sleeping on her bed and her arm's like hanging over the bed and she's out. And in her room, there was like a sliding door to the outside that one of the kids must have left open. And I see in the room, I look in the corner and there's a coiled up rattlesnake in our room. So, but it's like 1230 at night and I'm tired. So I just shut the door and leave her there. And it's like, I'll I'll deal with it in the morning, right? So in the morning, I get up and I'm like, all right, well, it's gone, so I don't know where it's at. It's got to be here somewhere. We'll eventually find it. And I'm completely making this story up, because <laughs> you guys are looking at like, I'm going to call DHS. Like, how could you do that? Just, Listen, that didn't happen, but because you would say, that's, that's ridiculous. Like, if there's danger, you're going to deal with it, right? Well, well we have, do we have a sense of urgency when we recognize sin in our life? Like, oh, I'll get to that. I'll just shut the door. We'll just kind of keep it undercover, but I'll eventually deal with it. But when we realize how dangerous sin is in our life, it's like, no, like, I don't care what time of day it is or is. Like, You've got to deal with that. You've got to put it to death. You have, you have to kill it. And when we know the danger of sin, we should have an urgency of dealing with it. But you, you can put it this way. Uh, confession is an act of killing sin. Secrecy is an act of managing sin. Secrecy is like, okay, I, I got this under control. Let, let's cover it up. Let's, I can manage it. I can handle it. Um, I won't do it again. But confession is an act of killing sin. Like, I got it. I, you're exposed. Let's bring it into the light. Let's, let's put it to death. And when these people were convicted of their sin, when Ezra read the law, I'm like, oh, man, we are so far from where we should be and what we should be doing. When they were convicted of their sin, confession followed conviction. And they were like, hey, I got to expose this. Like, this isn't my heart. This isn't my life. This isn't my actions. I want to get it out. Like, I need to expose this. And when it comes to sin in our lives, it seems like, it seems like there, can either, uh, there can either be two responses to it. Either people um, do not tend to take it too seriously. Like, what's the big deal? Everybody watches that show. Everybody does that on weekends. Everybody acts like that. Everybody talks like that. Well, like, what's the big deal? We're we're all sinners, right? We just kind of brush sin to the side. So so there's a response of, of we don't take it too seriously. Or another response is, we're just in a state of despair because of it. Like, I can't believe I did that again. Uh, How can God ever love somebody like me? Like, I'm a terrible person. And listen to me, neither of those two should be our response, Neither of those two should be our response. Here's how the leaders directed them. Before, when they were weeping because of their sin, they're like, no, 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 no! this is a joyful day. Not that you're a sinner, but that you realize your sin and you hate it. So let's celebrate that. Uh, let's have a party, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine. It's, it's a joyous time. And now here, when they're uh, wearing sackcloth and putting dirt on their face and not eating, here's what their leaders tell them. Jump down to verse 5. It says, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So he's saying, yes, confess it. Yes, turn away from it. But now worship. Strike up the band. Praise God. Like, like We're, we're going to move into a time of worship. He's like, get your attention off your sin and get it back on God. So it's like your sin should bother you. You should confess it. But you shouldn't dwell on it. You don't stay there. You put it this way. Your sin should bother you, but it should not depress you. If your sin doesn't bother you, then you don't get the holiness of God. But if your sin is depressing you and putting you in despair, then you don't get the grace of God. And how we respond to our sin communicates that we understand the gospel that I hate my sin because it has separated me from my creator, but I don't dwell in it and I can worship out of it because it's grace and it's greater than my sin. So so listen to me, This this is the paradigm shift. What if our failures increased our worship? What if our failures increased our worship? What if rather than getting so frustrated with ourselves, we fell more in love with God? I mean, for that to happen, we have to Take our sin seriously, and see clearly the grace of God. So these people here in this situation—they were convicted by their sin. They're they're fasting. They're confessing, and their leaders tell them, "Hey, okay, great. Now let's worship. Now let's bless God. Let's let's praise His name. Let's let's turn our attention to Him." And, and the one one person then breaks into this sermon. We don't know who it is, but somebody breaks into this sermon, and we're not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read some of it to you to kind of get the gist of what he's, what he's teaching these people in this moment. But he goes through the history of Israel, and here's some of the things he says in this sermon in chapter 9. I'll start and read some chunks, but starting in verse 16, it says, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and, com- and committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way which they should go. You gave your spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. So this is like God's amazing grace to a rebellious people. Now jump down to verse 26. It continues. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets." Who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer, and in time of their suffering they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviours who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and abandoned them. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your great mercies or to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted more presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And then you jump down to verse 33 at the end of it. He sums up kind of his whole message. He says this, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. That's kind, of, that's kind of the big idea. He's like, here, here's what we've learned looking at the history. We act wickedly and you act faithfully. Like you do not treat us as we deserve. You, you are great in mercies, so over and over again, he just emphasizes God's mercy, God's great mercy. They acted this way, but you acted this way. They acted this way, and they deserved this, but you gave them this. And you were faithful, and even though they blasphemed you and then rebelled against you and turned away from you, you are there with mercy. all the time, you're, you're, you're great mercy. And Paul refers to, to God being rich in mercy. He just, you're just shelling out mercy. Like you, you are so wealthy in mercy. And here's what these people needed to know in this moment. I think this is what we need to know as well. He kind of sums up, look at verse 17 again, the end of it. He says, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And when we are faced with our sin, it is so important to know the character of God. When we are faced with our sin, when we are convicted by our sin, you need to know the character of God. He is ready to forgive. You I just mean, you think, like, he's, that's, he's in a stance. He's like in this ready. He's like, I'm ready to forgive. Like, I'm ready to jump. I'm ready to forgive. I'm gracious. I'm merciful. I'm abounding in a steadfast love. Like, I have a lot of love to give. Like, when we blow it, when we're convicted of our sin, we have to know the character of God. John, in in 1 John 1.9, he says, listen, if you confess your sins, here's what you need to know about the character of God. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We have to know the character of God. So here's the question. How, How does confession and worship go together? Mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. God's great Mercy. God's mercy invites our confession. It says, listen, you're safe to come here. Bring your junk. Bring your struggles. I am ready to forgive. I'm abounding in steadfast love. And God's mercy invites our confession. And the fact that he's merciful doesn't just invite our confession. It turns our failures into worship because something greater than our failures takes center stage. Are you with me? Because it starts off being about how we blew it. Like, this is our failure. This is our sin. But then God's grace comes in, and that's bigger, and that's a bigger deal. Then that takes center stage. And now our attention's on that. So, guys, if we, if we understand the gospel, then confession doesn't end in shame. It don't stay there. It, it, it ends in worship. It should lead to worship. It should deepen our worship. God's mercy should transform our failures into worship. Now, we tend to go from failure to shame. We tend to go to failure. It's like, I can't believe I did that again. I'm a terrible person. I'm failing at this Christianity thing. How can God ever love somebody like me? And we go from failure to shame. Or we can go from failure to self-improvement. Like, I'm never going to do that again. right? I'm, I'm going to fix it this time. This time I'm going to do better. But you know what? On both of those situations, the focus is still you. We need to go from failure to worship. We need to go from failure to worship, and then out of worship behavior follows. Guys, Christianity is not about you getting it right. Christianity is about you getting Jesus, and Jesus will get you right. He will change you from the outside in, or from the inside out. He he makes a, a transformation in us. So we need to go from failure to worship. And to a group of people caught in their sins, this guy preached a message about God's mercy and faithfulness. That was the topic. You have a group of broken people like, I cannot believe we've drifted so far from God. We we are just covered in sinfulness. And the sermon given to them in that moment was, okay, I get it. Now let me tell you about God. I know you feel terrible, but but, but eyes up here. I want to tell you about our God. He is ready to forgive. He is steadfast in love. He he is gracious and merciful. And he preached about God. Because in confession, we eventually have to get our focus off how we blew it. And get it on to how amazing God's grace is. It's greater than our sin. And it should have more attention than our sin. It should have more focus than our sin. You could put it this way. If you're a note taker, this is what I would love for you to remember. Make your failures about God's mercy. Make your failures about God's mercy. And mercy doesn't mean sin's okay. It means like you deserve death, right? But that's not how you're getting treated. You're getting mercy. So if you would make your failures about God's mercy. And guys, confession as a group of people is how we do that. It's how we do that. God's mercy invites our confession. says it's safe to come here. I am faithful and just to forgive your sins when you confess. I will cleanse you from unrighteousness. I'm ready to forgive. Like we know the character of God. It invites our confession. And our confession then puts God's mercy on center stage. It puts it on display. And the problem is, or what tends to keep us from confessing, is we want to look good. I don't want to look like I don't have self-control. I don't want to look like I fail in that. I don't want to look like a liar or a pervert or a gossip. I I don't want people to think that of me. And it's really hard for us to look good and God to look merciful at the same time, right? Because God's mercy shines in our weakness, his grace takes center stage, and his forgiveness takes center stage when we need it. And the message of forg- forgiveness cannot thrive in a context where we don't drag sin into the light. And I, listen, I'm not saying this that you just kind of uh, flippantly air your dirty laundry just to everybody and anybody. But we cannot be a people that just kind of project that we have it all together. and We don't struggle. That does not put God's grace in the spotlight. Make your failures about God's mercy. And and, and here's the key, I think, to leading us to practice confession more. When it comes to confession, don't focus so much on what confessing says about you. Focus more on what the freedom of confessing says about God. When it comes to confession, don't focus so much on what confessing says about you, that it says that you struggle with this, that you fail in this, that you were weak in that. Focus more on what being free to confess says about God, that you trust in his grace, that he is ready to forgive, that his grace is greater than your sin, that you believe in mercy that he offers it. Put put God's grace on display in your freedom to confess. And listen, guys, if we go through this book, If you get into the Bible, like like Ezra brought out the scroll and they started reading this. If you get into this word, seriously, dig in it, here's what's going to happen. You are going to be convicted. If you're not, keep reading. You are going to bump into like, "Uh, I guess I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have talked that way. I shouldn't have thought that. I shouldn't have gone there. Or you're going to bump into things like, I'm supposed to be doing that and I'm not. And I need to be doing that. I'm scared to do that. You're going to be convicted. It's going to happen. It needs to happen. And when it does happen, I hope that you don't just brush it off. Like, oh, no big deal. Yep. And, and I hope you don't just try to fix it yourself. Like, I'm going to do it better this time, right? I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. And I also hope that you don't go into despair either. <laughs> I'm such a terrible person. How could God ever love somebody like me? I hope you you confess it. I hope you turn from it. I hope you repent. But there's gonna come a time where it's like, okay, get your eyes off of how you blew it and get your eyes on God. And worship all the more. Worship all the more because God is ready to forgive. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he will not forsake you. And you know that if you confess your sins, what's gonna be met by God and the community around you that represents God to you is forgiveness. And he is faithful and just to forgive you and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So church, may our confessions and our freedom to confess put God's grace center stage in our community. Put it center stage in our community to shine and may God's mercy increase our worship. And may we grow in holiness out of worship. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we can say that because you first loved us. And you declared that love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. You've seen us in our weakness. You know every secret in our heart and our minds. And in the midst of all that ugliness, you declare love for us. You tell us you're ready to forgive And to a group of just convicted um people that are broken over their sin, the message that they needed to hear, the message that we need to hear is, okay, let's, let's remember the character of you, that you are, God, ready to forgive, that you're, you have great mercy, and may we be free to confess, not having to project that we have it all together because we have a God who is great in mercy, and when we live authentically amongst each other and in community, may we put you and your great mercy on display all the more